Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thank you for joining us for another episode of In the Landscape. We're back. We're back. (laughs) Uh, We hope you're back. If you're a a longtime listener or short time listener, we haven't been around that long. (laughs) Welcome if you're and welcome if you're new. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. We have a great topic today. One that's I don't know. I find it really interesting because it sort of weaves together history and the gardens and our practice and great tips for garden owners. So hopefully today will be packed full of information that'll be useful to you all. And I am one of your hosts. I'm Kate Sadler. I'm here with my co-host. You've heard chiming in. And Charles, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's a good day, good day to be in the studio. It started to get cold here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny because the pets, we've mentioned our Cocker Spaniels. We also have a cat and the, they're starting to form those tight little fur balls. Oh, right. Like a pastry. (laughs) (laughs) And they really like turn in on themselves to stay cozy. You know, the plants will do that. Some of the broadleaf evergreens, like a rhododendron is one. It will, instead of being a long flat leaf, it'll curl up almost like a whistle. Wow. So it's almost, you could look out, you saw a photograph or if you looked out a window, you could tell that it was but it has to be in the twenties Fahrenheit for it to do that. And oh, it, that's quite cold. It, as it gets colder and colder, it's because it's protecting itself from mm-hmm. losing moisture. Mm-hmm. And it gets very tight, like it's almost like a pencil <laughs> when it's <laughs> when it's let's say like in the teens or ten degrees. That's a good signal for me. We always joke because I'm from California, so when the sun is shining, it means that it's warm. And I <laughs> and I think the same might be true here in the Houston, Texas area. That mm-hmm. the sun is just so strong that if it's out even in winter it's it's likely that it's providing some warmth and i spent those years in the new york region not quite equating <laughs> it could be sunny the sunshine and it could be with cold freezing freezing 20 degrees cold <laughs> yeah so i need to i need to peek out the window and see how the broadleaf evergreens are doing and that'll tell me where, <laughs> where i stand in terms <laughs> of putting on a coat Let's see. Did we have any corrections or additions from previous episodes? Anyone send us any questions no, recently? Not that I'm aware of. I think we're up to date. Great. Well, we mentioned that because we're always excited to share on-air questions, corrections. Today yes. we're going to yes, talk feedback because yeah. we're learning as we go. I mean, we, absolutely. We only know what we know, and then <laughs> more is revealed. That's right. And today, of course, for example, is a topic where we're going to cite a little bit of history. We did do some research. But if we say anything that you know more about, or uh, we misstate something and you happen to know, chime in, let us know. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, go at, we'll correct it in the next episode and uh, make sure we're getting the best information out there for our listeners. Right. That's always the goal. It's not that it's our, that we, we don't have any agenda. We just want to share best available information. Yeah. And we get excited about our listeners in different places. I'm seeing we're, we've got some listeners in France, which is exciting. And uh, I won't trouble anyone with my French <laughs> on here, but it's great. I hope. Uh, I oh, hope poutine. to listen. <laughs> well, I think that's Canada. Oh, Canadian French, <laughs> French Canadian, right? <laughs> I hope our listeners are not getting tired of hearing us mention the places. For us, it's just tremendously exciting, mm-hmm. and uh, we look forward to learning more about the regions that you're listening from, and maybe sharing about the gardens there. Today, we're talking about. Garden restoration, garden preservation. And mature gardens. And mature the gardens. Care, the yeah. care of 
mature gardens. Well, and as you've mentioned, as we were researching this topic, the care of mature gardens could almost be not a podcast unto itself, but certainly a series. So we have a few where we're trying to kind of identify what the topic will be by title. So our back to basics with the pruning, uh, we'll be putting together some more back to basics episodes, our garden cities episodes. So it's, there's like a theme and listeners who are perusing our show notes can get an idea of Oh, this is that series. This I like to follow. This I'll skip. <laughs> oh, right. Well, like in Massachusetts, there's the Olmstead planned the Emerald Necklace, which is a series of park, parks which form a green necklace, more or less. Oh, neat. And so throughout the world, there's cities that are very, you know, very rich. Yes. Then there's the southern U.S., Charleston, New Orleans, that have incredible, you know, garden history. So we're going to try to continue to feature those. And it's also a way of signaling if it's a topic you're passionate about. If you want us to share about your city and your city's gardens, you can always reach out to us and say, hey, you know, this, I think this would be great for those features. Mm -hmm. So that said, the mature garden topic could be a feature that we may come up with because it's Mm -hmm. one of the, one of the primary features of the gardens that we get called to a lot. Right. You know, there's a, there are plenty of places where there's brand new construction and folks are, it's almost like bare earth and new things are going in and you're doing design for that. But one of the things we specialize in, in our landscape design practice is this preservation and restoration of, of mature gardens, which takes special care. So let's dive in. Let's talk a little about the history of preservation as a concept. We'll refer, of course, mostly to efforts here in the United States to do historical preservation of landscapes. If you have something to share from your region, we welcome that. But uh, how did this all come about? Well, I guess, unfortunately, preservation or finding that we that guidelines or some oversight is needed has often come because there was a lack of oversight or lack of guidelines. So in the United States, a sort of a landmark some people would call it an architectural tragedy. Other people wouldn't have an opinion on it. When Penn Station, Pennsylvania Station, when that was torn down to make way for more or less like a skyscraper. And so people describe that as this cathedral, this civic cathedral where, you know, light streaming and you can see the photographs. It's like maybe one of the more beautiful civic spaces in North America. And if you have been to Pennsylvania Station in New York City, in since 1963, I suppose, which is when they tore down this magnificent building. You know, it's anything but that today. Right. <laughs> no disrespect. I mean, I, I commuted into Penn Station for a couple of years, and it's definitely a hive of human activity. You can grab a coffee, you can get your Amtrak train, your New Jersey Transit, but it is a bit grim, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say. I guess Madison Square Garden is like above it right. these days, which a lot again, a lot of great things happen within that space, but on the outside, it's just aesthetically not that inspiring. Mm-hmm. You sort of emerge from your commute with this like, ah, this is New York <laughs> City, huh? As as opposed to Grand Central Station. Right. Uh, Grand Central Terminal, which is a different feel altogether because of the response to sort of like the reaction to the tearing down of Penn Station. And then Grand Central was, I don't know if restored is the right word, but more or less it was restored. It was just covered in soot. Mm -hmm. When you're like people that spend time in New York know this, when you're in in the main hall, I guess it's called, you look up on the ceiling, it should be looking northwest, I think, that corner. And so the whole ceiling, there's a 
a zodiac mm-hmm. depiction of, of what, what the night sky would look like from there. And so there's a little band of of what the soot level was before they cleaned the ceiling. Really? They've kept it? Mm-hmm. Oh, so wow. I didn't know that. There's, I think, I'm guessing it's limestone is the construction. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the zodiac depiction of the sky is like a like a turquoise tile. So there's a band of this soot which goes across the tile and the limestone. Wow. And it's very dark. I mean, imagine like the back of a delivery truck that's covered with exhaust and soot. I mean, it's you can't tell what the original color was. It's that dirty. And that's so, really so, clever for them to have preserved it. Yeah. So it's like a level like remembering our past. Mm-hmm. Or we're gonna mm-hmm. repeat it. <laughs> repeat <laughs> our mistakes. And for for a young country like the United States, especially when you compare it to the great powers of like China or Japan or France, we have a short history. And I think the exuberance with which Americans have kind of gone on to new and bigger and better has resulted in a in a lack of preservation. Not entirely. Of course, we have the National Park Service, and that was pretty innovative effort to preserve natural landscapes for future generations for the collective good something that's that's really quite incredible about this this country in particular but in terms of buildings and gardens you know there's sort of a spirit of tear it down and build the new right. <laughs> the new thing well, there's, and, a, there's an economic principle called creative destruction so it's to destroy something in order to create something better. So there's a time for that, like the innovation of this sandwich, like, oh, we could have, <laughs> we could put some, something between two pieces of bread that's like innovative. <laughs> Which I believe is an English innovation, oh. not an American one, although we have certainly taken it and run with it. So it's right? not that innovation is bad, yes. but having no regulation where it's tear it down. Yeah. So we did some research. It's quite fascinating. The levels of preservation, restoration, I mean, more or less buildings, architecture, I would say has the most protection and, and the most thought of preservation. And you see this when you visit like a historic estate, let's say. The building might have been restored or preserved and the landscape is not. That's pretty common. So the preservation of landscapes is much more recent, more or less like the mid-20th centuries when they started to, or even the second half of the 20th century in the United States saying we need to preserve, have some kind of regulation to preserve these special buildings, special architecture. And then it's even a little after that, toward the end of the 20th century, where the preservation of cultural landscapes, of realizing that a landscape has cultural significance. And to be fair, I mean, I'm thinking about some of the gardens in France, like we saw at Vaux-le-Vicomte, mm. where I believe a family owns the property. They have preserved and maintained it. It's sometimes leased out, out for like film production. Like there was a film when we were there. They have an admission fee for people to come in. And it's really because the very, the sheer maintenance of this property, like it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's uh, wonderful to, to be an owner of, a, of an estate like that, but it's not a luxury in a sense because <laughs> you're actually beholden to that property if you want to maintain it at a level mm-hmm. that is at, especially at a, at a high historic standard and so the adoption of this idea that landscape should be maintained as well as architecture really takes it requires an investment yeah endowments I mean, like the the advent in it there's the national trust in the uk and the u.s there's 
various conservancies that have sprung up. There's a Central Park Conservancy. There's the Garden Conservancy, which covers the United States. And we learned there's some properties in Canada too. So these more or less nonprofits or organizations that solicit donations, that have boards, you know, that are, there's the Cultural Landscape Foundation, these organizations that really, it goes beyond what the government can do. You know, that there's a limit to what the government can preserve. There's a limit to what individuals can preserve. And so just to kind of highlight the changes in in these attitudes, National Park Service uh, was started. I don't have the year off the top of my head. My father worked for them. I've seen the Ken Burns film. And I, mm-hmm. and I, I know it was, it was as a result of, of Teddy Roosevelt and his efforts. So I want to say around the early 1900s. And, you know, we have these national parks because you have these great sort of undisputed natural features that should be preserved. And then the, as we said, Pennsylvania Station was torn down in 1963. So the effort to preserve Grand Central Station would have followed that. And that's, you know, more than half or maybe half a century later. And then you mentioned the is it the Cultural Landscape Foundation? Right. When uh, that, the man I started that, Charles Birnbaum, he's a Syracuse landscape architect graduate too. Nice. So he's yeah, very innovative that it requires a lot of oversight. And they even have a sort of a campaign of cultural landscapes that are in danger. And, and they'll make alerts and they'll say, this, you know, this landscape is in danger of being lost for maybe it's, if there's going to be a parking lot, it's going to be, it's an Olmstead, beautifully, beautiful pastoral landscape. And some eyes just see that as just grass, no big deal. Let's put a parking lot there. And that it really is, it's significant. And so as a through line, just to show when that was developed in order to begin to make landscapes a priority in terms of preservation, that organization was founded in the, the 90s? Right, 1993. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, 1998. Right, okay. So So there again, you have like another 30 years or so transpiring before the collective action in the case of the Cultural Landscape Foundation to preserve these landscapes. Um, and know, some of those conservancies you mentioned maybe started a little a little ahead of that. Right. You know, to tie it into landscape in our travels, there's in the greater San Francisco area, I guess it's at Walnut Creek. Yes. So there's the Ruth Bancroft Garden. That's a more or less like a zero escape where it's plants that grow there that need no supplemental water. It's, and it's a dry... It's a Mediterranean, uh, it's a dry landscape. So the story goes, the Cabots, who started the Garden Conservancy, they had a home, multiple homes. One of them was in Cold Spring, which is in the, in the Hudson Valley. And they had one in, in Canada uh, that was legendary. That's also another garden. And so they were visiting Ruth Bancroft in California. And she lived at way over, well over 100, I believe. So they were visiting her. 40 years ago, she might have been like in her, in her 70s, let's say. They were sitting in this incredible garden that she had built, I mean, more or less with their own ingenuity, you know, of course, with like assistance. And they had this vision that this garden would be lost if there wasn't some step taken. And that, that supposedly held the Garden Conservancy. That was like, like, like the seeds that helped found the Garden Conservancy that went on to preserve many, many gardens. I mean, I think it's, I think it says that it's like over 80 gardens. So it's, it's significant landscapes that a lot of those would have been lost. That, you know, when it comes to 
the owners pass away, that their their offspring may or may not have any interest in that. They might not have the funds to maintain them. So it's really it's determining that this is has significant cultural validity and then preserving it in a smart way so it's efficient too. It's economically efficient that it's it's reasonable to maintain. Now you mentioned the possibility that one might take like an Olmstead landscape and try to put a parking lot there, which almost sounds like hyperbole, like except I know there there is an, a case you've spoken about where they're trying to place the presidential library for Obama. Correct. In I think is it we, we just talked about Chicago. Is it might be Jackson Park? Okay. And so they're having to figure out where to place it in this historic landscape that was really right. do you preserve it and how do you how do you accommodate and the national parks are maybe a good example of this as well. How do you accommodate ongoing use and maintain preservation? You know, that's come up in the Landscape Architecture Journal. In the last year or so, there was a beautiful article on the Grand Canyon. And so up until they they redesigned it, there's incredible Grand Canyon. And then more or less, it was a giant asphalt parking lot, like right next to the Grand Canyon to accommodate the, the, the volume of tour buses and people. And the firm, I don't recall the firm, we could look it up, of course, redesigned it. What they did so to maintain that it's handicap accessible, that it's available to as many people as possible, they took the parking lots and they pushed them away from the rim of the canyon. And then they redesigned more or less a native landscape that was perfectly in character with, with that greater natural landscape. That's exciting. I think what we'll do when we can't come up with something in the spoken portion of the program... Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> We typically make a note and go back and add it to the show notes. So if you're interested in the firm that did the redesign, rather than click on our computers and look it up for you here, we'll go ahead and add it to our show notes, which you can find on our website, King Garden Inc. That's I-N-C, kinggardeninc.com. And then if you just do, you can find us through the drop-down menu, the podcast page, but you can also do King Garden Inc. forward slash in dash the dash landscape. And it should pop right up with options to find our show notes. You know, on like a much smaller scale, but 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 it was of interest when I was part of it. There's a Frank Lloyd Wright planned community in Westchester County called Usonia. That were there were like maybe about a dozen homes or so, and he designed three of them, and then his proteges designed the other ones. And so, when I was pretty recently working. At I guess as a doing my landscape architecture internship under a senior landscape architect, he had a project there, and it was it was a weeping Japanese maple that had been planted close to steps, and it was a Frank Lloyd Wright home, and so all the masonry, the stone walls, the retaining walls. The current owners called us, and they weren't able to use these steps. This beautiful Japanese maple was in the way, and it had it had sort of morphed. So the maple had a lot of significance you know it it felt like it belonged there and the steps look out of place even though they had been designed originally you know to make sense and so the senior landscape architect walking me through that you know is this is it was it's a significant landscape and it became it, it was deemed reasonable to move the steps over and i remember supervising that that it was there was room to do it it would have been it would have been safe the uh, design would have still had its integrity and and this beautiful Japanese maple that had grown up 
that was an original plan, I believe, was still there. So it's just on a very small scale. It's, it's really making, like applying reason, what's reasonable, what's for the greater good. Yeah, one interesting resource we came across during our research for this program was the National Park Service has the Secretary of the Interior's standards for the treatment of historic properties, and this includes guidelines for the treatment of cultural landscapes. So for the listeners that are outside the United States, the Department of the Interior is a cabinet position in the federal government. It oversees a few departments, I want to say I'm not going to get it right. So I'm not going to say, I do know that the Department of the Interior oversees the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. And so they have a vested interest in preserving landscapes that accompany some of the properties that the National Park Service itself oversees. So some things like a Vanderbilt mansion in the Hudson Valley Mm -hmm. may actually be not overseen by a conservancy per se, but by the National Park Service. And it's, it's in sort of the public trust. And that's true that of, of FDR's home, which is very nearby the Vanderbilt Mansion, which is in Hyde Park, which is like about the mid-Hudson. And so according to their website, uh, they have four standards. They are preservation, rehabilitation, restoration, and reconstruction. And if you click on each of those, you could, depending on the degree to which you want to preserve or restore, reconstruct your landscape, it will give you a list of guidelines that sort of the recommendations and then an counterexample, what they don't recommend you do. Mm. Um, so just an example would be preserving landforms that may be like, like leveling a hill. Yeah. That the grading that was there to begin with was of some importance and established by the landscape architects for a purpose. Sometimes it's like the carriage road comes around a bend and mm-hmm. <laughs> you weren't expecting to see it. So Every once in a while, you know, private citizens come into the possession of, of beautiful historic homes, and it may make sense to kind of do an inventory or a survey of the landscape there, do a little bit of research about who maybe designed the landscape right. for that home, if possible, or people that were maybe doing landscape design work in your area, so that you're, you're looking at the work of contemporaries if you can't find the architect of record. Anything no, to add? Uh, you know, the, the Smithsonian has a garden more or less like a division. Mm. Uh, and there's a librarian. I know that actually Charles Birnbaum from the Cultural Landscape referred me to. Let's say, for instance, you're working on a, on a property which you believe is historic or you know is historic, like we've worked on in the Hudson Valley or other places, but you're not able to find who the original designer was. You want to find out more. The new owners wish to make additions, changes. And so I always like trying to find out what was the intent? What was the original design intent? So the Smithsonian has an ex- extensive capacity for that research. And there's all types of, like the original archival material might be at uh, UC Berkeley or might be at SUNY ESF in Syracuse, but the Smithsonian would have more or less like that oversight. The line on the website that really stands out to me is this preservation standards require retention of the greatest amount of historic fabric. So it's really mm. acknowledging that the landscape it's not just a building kind of plunked down and that's history, that there is a fabric to land use and the growth of plants on the land and the shaping of the land that that's really special. And you certainly see that when you visit historic places that have been preserved, there's a, you're immersed in it and it has a whole, this feeling of being a part of a fabric of history. 
that firm that hired us that was out of Charlottesville, and we worked on Stratford Hall. That's a historic site in Virginia. I mean, the level of of research where there's there's archaeology. I mean, they're digging, they're seeing what plant material was here, you know, to, to really try to tell that story accurately. So all of this lofty talk about grand estates on the Hudson <laughs> River Valley are we're funneling down into how to make this applicable for the average listener with their own landscape. And we've talked a lot about preservation and restoration. And I'm I'm thinking, for example, of that weeping Japanese maple that you mentioned. At some point, that tree will also undergo its natural life cycle. And it even though the steps were moved, it's going to have to be replaced, or there's some consideration is going to have to be made for the fact that although there are some plants that survive many, many years, there's kind of a weaving in and out of different plants over time. So grading may stay relatively similar, some of the hardscaping, but then there's the maintenance of the plants themselves. What are some tips for how to be mindful of that or even assess that that's what needs to take place on a property if they're moving into it or doing this inventory for the first time? To do an inventory, that's sort of the first step, almost always. It's There's Boscobel that's in the mid-Hudson that looks over out in the Hudson Valley, and there's two giant sugar maples that flank it. So like if those trees were to decline, for instance, there'd be a question, should we replace them with sugar maples? Are the sugar maples, with as climate gets warmer, that might not be the best choice for another hundred years. <laughs> it's like taking an inventory, what's significant? And then is the replacement, it's not necessarily replacing it ex- with exactly what's here. You know, so it's really pausing where there, let's say there's innovations with materials or with plants. There's that new boxwood, the Saunders Brothers are developing next gen that's supposedly resistant. You know, so it's a little like like these guidelines for restoration. What's the original design intent? How can that be respected? But then within reason too. Like it wouldn't be reasonable to plant a sugar maple every 25 years because it it can't survive. <laughs> and then I mean, working with working around mature plants, those roots are usually extensive, whether it's a shrub whether it's a boxwood or a maple tree or an oak tree, a dogwood tree. So being quite sensitive that if mature plants have grown up together, they've learned to coexist. If one of them died, you wouldn't necessarily be able to put a big plant in its place. That area is probably full of roots. So as plants recede, it might be hard to maintain it in a way, like to go back to the way it was. So there are all kinds of tricks. There's, let's say if like a ground, there's different types of ground covers or grasses or perennials, ornamental grasses, I mean, which could coexist with larger mature plants. There's beautiful urns, which could add interest in an area where it's solid roots, which you would have on, on very old properties. Those are some good recommendations. And um, it's interesting because that, that website for the National Park Service, the Guidelines for Treatment of Cultural Landscapes, also refers to reconstruction. So if you're really going all in and you want to make <laughs> make it truly historic, maybe as you've said, it's un, it's un, unfortunate that there may be some plants that are no longer tolerant in the way that they would have been 200 years ago. So reconstruction could be a bit of a challenge, and that's where your research skills, <laughs> your passion as a gardener, and your research <laughs> skills are going to come in handy to and find do, alternatives. And doing lots of and, and, and collaborating, I think, is helpful. You know, but there's, maybe there's a so- doing a soil test in your local garden 
if it's a more larger estate or something public, having soil uh, samples. So like, what are we working with here? <laughs> having a soil scientist and some of these old properties, the soil is so compacted. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, just from rain, the soil gets compacted. And from people walking, just foot traffic. So that soil might not be hospitable for new plantings or the plantings may have declined because of the soil compaction. There may be issues which you can't even see. You can't see that the soil's compacted. So that's a really important point in terms of even getting started. And what about preservation of existing plants? Uh, trees and shrubs, I would think, mostly because those would be perhaps the oldest on the property. Well, that would be the role of consulting arborists, which like we have that role sometimes, or sometimes we hire other, other arborists, uh, depending where we are in the world. So having someone really assess, like in the Hudson Valley, I've come across native sycamores that were three to 400 years old. It was really quite enormous, quite special. And that tree, I remember, it gets an annual checkup. The <laughs> arborist visits, and there's, an, I mean, in some of these larger properties or public spaces, there'll be a little tag that'll be nailed to the tree with a code number, you know, 136. And that's in a database. And every time someone visits and checks on it, if there's an issue, like there's maybe a crack or there's decay, as long as you monitor the conditions and the monitoring could just be having an arborist come to your house once a year and, you know, and spend 15 minutes, look up at the tree. Are there any changes? Do we need to do anything? And that goes a long way. That's a helpful tip because I know, for example, when I was in my, you know, 20s, I didn't worry about going to the doctor at all. (laughs) You know, I went when I was sick, but it was this idea of getting the checkup, the physical, the yearly physical was just like very strange to me. I'm very busy. (laughs) You feel like you're going to live forever. It's it's fine. But, uh, you know, as as I get a little older (laughs) or a lot older, since I'm referring to my 20s, it's just that sense that you know, going in and getting a baseline and getting checked out for uh, certain certain things and and knowing what your history is and and then just checking up on it consistently puts you in a position to do, to take preventative action. None of us want the worst to happen, but of course, it's helpful to be aware and proactive. And you can't unless unless you know and have this checkup. So what you're essentially saying is that in a way, for these mature plants this should not be negotiable. Like really just make the appointment with the consulting arborist, make mm-hmm. that a part of your practice. And, you know, as we said, this, the reason there are trusts and, and people donate to these organizations is that it is an investment. And as you're looking at a new property and, and preparing to take it on, it is important to, to kind of like adopting a pet, like, like what is the long-term implication of Mm -hmm. taking on this property and caring for it? Or do you need to make another plan entirely and make sure you're going with a a property that maybe is easier to maintain? Right. It's a big, I mean, that's a big thing to suggest. Like if you, you know, if you have the resources to take on an historic property, who are we to tell you how to maintain it? But it does come with a responsibility, I think just sort of philosophically that Mm -hmm. when you know, it's our job as lovers of landscapes to kind of like at least put that out there. Well, there's been, it was in the United States, it was a very significant landscape architect, like a you know, well-known person. And they had a, a, a very large uh, residential project that they're working on where it would be, it was like about a decade's worth of work. So it's extensive 
all different types of buildings, probably hundreds of acres. And as they started to get into this, maybe they've been working on it for a year, the landscape architect stated that he wanted a he or she wanted a trust form so that the next generation would maintain this, that isn't going to spend 10 years of his or her life, and then that house could be sold, which often happens, actually. Well, and we would even argue, sort of in the tradition of Beatrix Ferrand, that one have a trust to maintain it and a, and a maintenance plan. That- right, like guidelines. Where It could be an illustration. This is a, a clipped linden, uh, linden hedge. And this is what it looks like, you know, an illustration. And the time of year it should be done in July after whatever time of year. And so with those guidelines and then trained people. So for instance, if you hand it like a maintenance plan off to a landscape architect to oversee it, landscape designer, certified arborist, people with that training would be able to maintain it. That it's not, it's not high risk that, oh, this might fall into disrepair. If you have professionals maintaining it and there's it's documented it's it's reasonable that it should be okay well and a nice thought too just my sister has a home it's it's a lovely home it's not an estate but it's a very nice home it's got some beautiful trees that are you know a few a few decades old i would say and um there are photos from when the trees were much younger and so there's there's just something nice too about the the continuity and even if you're a new homeowner to imagine, you know, the tree when it was planted and Mm -hmm. the life cycle that it's had. And so being preservation minded or restoration minded is a way of honoring the landscape and collecting the materials that maybe you would pass on to the next person who's taking it over. So even if it's not at the level of developing a trust and a you know maintenance <laughs> plan for your grand you know Hudson Valley estate, you might still take pictures or or kind of compile a record the way you would for the house itself and how it's been maintained and the blueprints or whatever. And we've re- we've received those from homeowners occasionally where maybe there was an original design that they were part of or not, and just seeing that. And then I love to learn what the intent is. You know that. Well, the, like what was it? There was a program that was intended. It was to frame the house or to provide shade or to provide fall color. And so, like for instance, there are, there's often substitutes. So it's maybe boxwood's not going to work or sugar maple, but that same design intent could be maintained. And, you know, programs do change as properties change owners. And so that's, it's fair to honor that as well, that there is that spirit of, like the parking lot at the Grand Canyon, how do we do it in a way? What can be preserved if the whole can't be maintained in perpetuity? Since Mm -hmm. I also mentioned carriage trails, (laughs) we're not really riding carriages around the the grounds anymore in most cases. So so maybe, you know, maybe it, it does change a little bit or even a lot, but that there's a spirit there that is being remembered in a way. So we've talked quite a bit about, you know, the inventory, making sure you have the checkup, basically enlisting the right kind of help, doing your own record keeping, and maybe consulting other records and archives if you have a real interest in this. And of course, we'll talk about mature gardens in greater detail in future episodes, because there's, there's a lot more to consider um, as you're taking care of aging plants. Was there anything else related to this kind of introduction to the concept? That you wanted to share before we close? Well, let's see, plants can be transplanted. So that's often a question. If somebody's in the wrong place or it's there are plants that are more or less overgrown. And so a professional could assess that. 
even very large plants, can, it's possible to transplant. Let's see, there's innovations all the time. So there might be like the native dogwood native to America, North America, that's prone to all kinds of problems, disease. So it's very, very special. So if you're going to replant one, there'd be one that it's often be like a hybrid of American and Asian, for instance, that would have very, very similar character, but that it wouldn't get all kinds of plant healthcare problems. So there's a way to maintain the integrity of a mature garden and the spirit of it, but it like it is going to change. It's like it's it's not furniture where you can keep maintaining it forever. And then at the same time, you don't have to throw out all that history either and say, you know what, we're just going to put in a, a privet hedge or put in some burning bush. So like, I guess having, like to my mind, having respect for the past, but, it, but that it's not fixed. It's not you know, set in stone. You can't do anything with it, but it's a museum. And that there's often a happy medium. And it, it depends on the garden owner too. Well, we will link to lots of resources in the show notes for this episode. Feel free to reach out to us. We love when our listeners share their own photos of their favorite historic gardens, the, the preservation efforts that they are most in love with in the landscape. Of course, if you have any questions, we're compiling information for another listener question episode. Mm-hmm. And that can be, you know, design related, garden specific garden related, or even a how to. And we're happy to answer those questions. Just as an example for anyone who's new. Our last listener episode covered topics such as why don't my hydrangeas bloom right. and issues of when to prune them. So we're hopeful that that's helpful, that you got something out of today's episode. And uh, we look forward to feedback. Feel free to rate and review us on our different platforms. We're happy to hear from you. Very good. All right. We hope <laughs> you get out in the landscape sometime soon. Until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.